Well, good evening, everybody. Seth, musicians, thank you so much. I don't think we could have picked better songs. I think it ties in perfectly to all the things we're going to talk about. So thank you very much. Appreciate that. The, the title for tonight's message is the, the Cause and Cure for Sinful Anger. The Cause and Cure for Sinful Anger. Abraham Lincoln had a way of addressing his anger in a now famous way called the Never Signed, Never Sent Letter. He would, when he was angry, uh, write a letter that just vented all his anger, but he wouldn't sign it and he would never send it. He applied this to his uh, then Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who was raving mad about one of their generals, and he encouraged him to go off and write that letter, and he came back two days later, and Abraham Lincoln promptly encouraged him to take that letter and throw it directly into the trash. And Edward Stanton wasn't too uh, encouraged or excited about that, but he did follow Lincoln's advice. And while we as Christians wouldn't necessarily follow every single one of Lincoln's uh, directions about anger, he certainly seemed to understand some of the folly of sinful anger. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says this, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And Proverbs 14.29 says, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. As we consider how people deal with anger today, a recent survey in psychology today, in the people they surveyed, 46% of them vented their anger through their Twitter feeds, whether for personal or professional reasons, as a way to feel better, as some sort of therapeutic release. Additionally, it's speculated that the emotion anger is the most common to go viral. With the viral nature of this all-too-common sin, not just in the world, but in the church and in the home as well, one counselor said that 80 or 90% of the counseling that they do involves anger to some degree or another. Because of this, we need just as much as in any time a biblical understanding of the cause and cure of sinful anger. Let's begin by looking at understanding the dangers of sinful anger and then at its cause and cure. So understanding the dangers of sinful anger. In Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27, it says this, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What's the danger here? The, the danger is that anger gives the devil an opportunity to work in our lives and in our homes specifically. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Angry words are dangerous because they cut, and with that cause pain and suffering, oftentimes to the people we say we care the most about. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 addresses the deeds of the flesh, and among them, outbursts of anger and Outburst of anger is mentioned alongside immorality and sins like drunkenness. At the very end of verse 21, it says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the danger here is that those who practice, that is, as a, as a habitual way of life, an outburst of anger or flying off the handle, as some may say, do not inherit. That's the, the danger. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. They're not believers specifically. Well, now that we've looked at some of the dangers in Scripture of sinful anger, let's look now at understanding the cause of sinful anger. To help us understand sinful anger, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11, where we'll look at a specific example of the Pharisees' anger, sinful anger towards Jesus. As you turn there, another way to define this sort of anger is in James uh, verse 1, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20, where James calls it the anger of man. Let's read Luke 6, starting in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, 
entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose hand, right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up, come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, it's the Pharisees and those in the synagogue there, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, going back to verse 2, speaking of the Pharisees, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. To better understand sinful anger, and specifically why the Pharisees were angry at Jesus. Let's look at a definition from Robert Jones's book, Uprooting Anger. He defines anger this way. He says, anger is our whole personed, active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Let's break this definition down just part by part and then compare it to what we see here in Luke 6. Anger is whole personed in that it involves in us not just the emotions, but our thoughts, desires, and behaviors as well too. The text says the religious leaders were filled with rage, and to really rightly understand their emotional response, we must understand it not as limited just to their emotions, the way they felt. We'll see in a moment how it engaged their thoughts and their desires, but we see in the text here that their anger led them to immediately go with, with their actions, their behavior, and go and plot against Jesus specifically. And so it's whole person, and then it involves all of us. Anger also is an active response in that it does not arise out of thin air. Someone or something provoked it. In our text, we see the Pharisees' angry response coming after Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. They were clearly against what Jesus had done, and their anger proved that. But why specifically were they against Jesus? Well, they had made a negative moral judgment. They thought what he had done was evil or wrong against what Jesus did specifically. And as we get to this part of Jones's definition, it's very helpful because it speaks to causation. That's that negative moral judgment against the perceived evil. In other words, it speaks about the source of our anger, right, that comes from within our own hearts. So while anger is motivated by something, it's an active response, that something outside of ourselves is not the source of our anger. The origin of anger instead comes from inside the heart of the angry person as they make a negative moral judgment about the things that they perceive before them. They say that's wrong or that's evil or maybe even as simple as that shouldn't have happened that way. That's where anger comes from. It comes from the condition of our hearts as we respond to external circumstances and make judgments about those circumstances. In our text, Jesus is being judged to have done something wrong because he healed on the Sabbath, and which was forbidden in the mind of the Pharisees since their tradition specifically likely from the Mishnah, forbid healing on the Sabbath except under very specific circumstances. And while we cannot be certain what tradition exactly the Pharisees had in their mind, the Mishnah only allowed healing on the Sabbath when there was an immediate danger of death. So if someone was going to die, then there could be something done specifically to help them. But that was not the case here. And so according to the Mishnah, the earliest acceptable time for Jesus to heal would have been the following day. This explains then why the Pharisees were angry. They, they thought, that is, they made a specific judgment that Jesus was sinning. Their negative moral judgment was towards Jesus, who in their mind had broken the law of God, but all he'd truly done is broken their traditions or their traditional application of the law from the Mishnah. 
Something that helped me, a story that I was told a while back that really helped me understand just the Jewish mindset in this way was a story from Dr. Grisanti. He's an Old Testament professor at the Master's Seminary in California. He was leading a trip, as he does very often in the summer, to Israel and was standing at the Wailing Wall at the base of the Temple Mount where many Jews go to pray as well as others. And he was having an evangelistic conversation with this Jewish man. And as they were talking and discussing the Scriptures, this man continued to quote who he was saying was Moses. But Grisanti knew the Old Testament Scriptures extremely well. He'd recently written a commentary on Deuteronomy. He knew the law. He knew what Moses says and has said. And this man was quoting not from Moses, but from the Mishnah or a like text. But he was quoting it as if Moses had directly said it. He was putting it on equal par, equal footing to what Moses had said. And so these Jewish writings, in other words, were, for example, an application of what it means to work or not work on the Sabbath. And so they have how far you can walk and how much weight you have to lift. And that's what he was saying Moses had said. And so this is why the Pharisees, as they looked at what Jesus had done, believed specifically that he had done something sinful. So now that we understand why the Pharisees were angry, and also too how we can get angry as we judge or look at something and believe it's wrong or sinful. Now that we've looked at causation, let's go ahead and look at how a negative moral judgment against a perceived evil clarifies a distinction between righteous and unrighteous anger. As we further consider these moral judgments that cause anger in our hearts, it is here that we begin to see this distinction specifically. That is, when our moral judgments are faulty. So, when we have a faulty moral judgment, we say something is sin when it truly isn't, that's beginning of sinful anger. We read in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God is a righteous judge in the sense that He always judges righteously. The things that He thinks are sinful and wrong and evil and bad, where true anger should be against, that's what His anger is expressed against. It says He has indignation every day. The anger of man is sinful when our judgments are wrong or unrighteous. That is, when we get angry at something that's not truly sinful as the Pharisees did. But also, it, our judgments can be sinful when we get angry for self-centered or selfish reasons. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So first, our, our anger can be sinful when it's sinful internally. Our anger can also be sinful when it's sinful externally. Right, when, it's expressed, it, when it expresses itself in outwardly or behaviorally sinful ways, that is, in ways the Bible specifically forbids. Some have categorized two of the ways that anger can be expressed behaviorally, that is, external, or some have said volcanic type of anger, or internal type of anger, or the crockpot sort of anger, they call it. The volcanic sort of anger is explosive, it includes outbursts, violence, yelling, killing people, breaking things, or things like that. It's, it's outward. It expresses itself in very damaging ways. The crockpot sort of anger also expresses itself in dangerous or difficult ways, damaging ways. But it's internal. It's a slow boil, a clam up, a replay in our minds over and over this internal type of resentment or coldness or bitterness or withdrawing sort of anger, both of these can be sinfully, behavioristically, ways that we can act. And the Bible universally condemns these behaviors in its calls to love, to edify, right, to be self-controlled, to be gentle or patient, to be humble or not fret, and to forgive, as well as many others. All this is why in James 1, verse 20, as we looked at earlier, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Man's anger ultimately falls short when it's unrighteous. For anger to be truly godly, it must be righteous in both inwardly and outwardly ways. 
both in our judgment of right and wrong and in our behavior specifically. Hopefully this definition and explanation helped as we examined sinful anger. Here's now, here now is one more definition that adds something helpful. Richard Baxter said in his book, A Christian Directory, anger is the rising up of the heart in passionate displacency against an apprehended evil which would hinder us of some desired good. While Robert Jones's definition is very helpful, I wanted to include Richard Baxter's as well too because it keys in on a specific uh, aspect of the anger of man or sinful anger that we didn't elaborate on earlier. Many times when someone is sinfully angry, the reason they have made a negative moral judgment wasn't because of wrong or right specifically, but it was because they didn't get what they wanted. They wanted something they believed was good for them to get, to have, and so they got selfish and they, they, they got angry. So in other words, it's a selfish desire that leads, in this case, to sinful anger. We see this distinction in Mark 14, uh, verses 3 to 5, and also, too, in John 12, 4 through 6, which is a parallel account. It's the story of Judas' accusation of wrongdoing and anger towards the woman who anointed Jesus with the costly oil. You guys remember that story? Let me read from John's account specifically because he clarifies the actual reason that Judas was angry. It says in John 12, 4 to 6, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, and John clarifies what's going on inside his heart, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And so Judas wasn't looking at what this woman had done and, say, and, and saying in his heart, oh, that's a, a misappropriation of stewardship. That's wrong. That's a wasteful thing to do. It could have been given to the poor specifically. What he wanted was to put money in his pockets. And so what led him to make that negative moral judgment was the fact that he wanted money in his pockets. And so he pointed at that lady who was doing something good, as Jesus clarified, and said, you're doing what's wrong. And this can certainly happen in our lives as well, too, as we want certain things. I mean, after a long day's work, who doesn't want to rest, right? Or who doesn't want their work that they're doing to prosper specifically? Right? Who doesn't want their sports team to win or to have maybe an uninterrupted, you know, sports watching experience, okay, at some different times, all right? Uh, this can happen, and things can get in the way. Right? There's a couple of things in my home sometimes that get in the way. That happens, but that can lead us to say, you're doing something wrong because they're getting in the way of something just that we want for ourselves, and so selfish desires can, be, can lead us to sinful anger. Many times, this is the reason for sinful anger, not you sinned against God specifically, but you did something wrong, speaking to this person, because you kept me from getting what I wanted. A great reference for that is James 4, verses 1 to 2. If you guys wanted to write that down. In my experience, this is the most common way people fail. And the most common way, honestly, too, that they're blinded in seeing their, their sinful contribution to that situation because all they can see is what that other person has done to hinder them. That's their focus. But we see in both this definition and the last that our anger comes from a negative moral judgment, which can be sinful if that judgment is made against something that is not actually sin or if that judgment specifically is selfish. And then beyond that, if our behavior, the way that we act or respond when we're anger, angry is sinful in its expression, our anger can be sinful as well too. Lastly here as we think about Understanding sinful anger specifically, I want to look at a spectrum because I don't know if you guys have had this experience before, 
But many times people will say to me, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm just, I'm just frustrated. You guys, ever, you guys ever heard that one before? I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm irritated, right? But what I want to say, and, and hopefully the spectrum will help you as you think through it, is all, all of these words here are a varying intensities of this idea, anger. Okay, they're all related. You could say they're first cousins in a way. But it begins with irritation being possibly, again, these are somewhat relative as I put them on the scale here, but beginning with the least one, irritated, annoyed, frustrated, aggravation, it gets more intense, indignation, then anger, wrath, rage, and, and most of us would put anger kind of on the later end of the intensity scale, I think. But really, what we're talking about tonight encompasses all of these to a various degree. Hopefully that helps as you think about this anger spectrum specifically in understanding sinful anger. Now that we've done or looked at an understanding of the cause, let's look now at an understanding of the cure for sinful anger. We want to look first at an introduction to emotions as we consider the cure for the sinful emotion of anger. As we consider emotions, we should ask ourselves, why, why do we experience emotions specifically? Why do, why do we have them? It helps us as we think about growing and changing. As we consider an intro to or theology of emotions, and just in a nutshell here, the reason we experience emotions is because we're made in the image of God. So in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God made us in His image, and because He is a God that has emotions, as we read earlier in Psalm 711, we have emotions as well too. And we experience sinful emotions because of the fall. So just a couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 3, where the corruption of sin brought corruption even to the expression, the feelings that we have inside of ourselves and the behaviors that come out of emotions like anger. So if we can have emotions based on God's image or we have them on that basis, then what can we say is our goal emotionally? Well, since God is perfectly holy, it is best that we imitate or reflect God specifically in our emotions. To do this, oftentimes we have to change. We have to be transformed. Our sinful emotions have to be transformed if they're going to reflect God's image. And as we mentioned earlier, it is the sinful thoughts, that is the judgments and selfish desires that cause our sinful anger and the behaviors that come as a result of that that need to be transformed. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, for a brief look at how this transformation takes place. The first point I want to make is about transformation or concerning transformation is about glory. It's about glory. Let me read the text for us, this verse here. But we all, with an unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We see in this text that the cure for those things in us contrary to the image of God, it is that they must be transformed into the image of God by beholding the glory of God specifically. And this isn't an uncommon principle even in everyday life because beholding something often leads to becoming like that something. So if, you know, when just, as, just thinking through this is when you were younger guys and you were watching a, a show about cowboys or ninjas or whatever it is, when you finished that show, what did you want to be like? Cowboy or ninja or whatever, whatever that was. And ladies, when you watched a show about princesses when you were growing up. What did you want to be ultimately? If it's anything like my daughter, I, it's a princess, right? Usually you have your one of seven, you know, princess dresses, you know, on by the end of the show, something like that. And so as we see something and we say that something is awesome, we could say it's glorious. 
the result is we want to be like that something, right? That glorious thing that we behold. So when we behold the glory of God as Christians, we say nothing else but, Lord, I want to be just like you. I want to be just like you. The reason is because there's nothing better. As we look at who Christ is, there's nothing superior, nothing better than who he is and how he responds in all circumstances and situations. And that includes his emotions, includes his emotions as well too. Yet the question remains, how do we behold God's glory? The answer for us today and in our day and time is through the instrument of God's truth specifically, the instrument of God's truth. As we continue to consider 2 Corinthians 3.18, there are two verbs that are important in understanding the truth's relevance and transformation. They are the verbs beholding and transformed. So more specifically, what we need to understand is who actually is performing the actions in both of these verbs. Let me read the text one more with an emphasis on these two verbs. It says again, we, but we all with an unveiled face beholding, there's our first verb, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed, our second verb, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The tense of each verb indicates its actor. Beholding is an action that we specifically do as Christians, whereas transformation is an action that God does to us with the later transformation following the former beholding. And so what does it mean to behold, again, the glory of the Lord? It simply means looking into the glory of Christ revealed in Scripture, who He is and how He's responded specifically. We can also do this by simply looking into God's thoughts in Scripture, that is the whole of Scripture. But what I found particularly helpful is actually looking at specific examples of Christ and how He's responded in circumstance that might be a little frustrating, as they say. Some may say no when asked if they are for anger, but this misses the glory and perfections of the anger of Christ as revealed in Scripture and now available for us to behold and to become. Jesus, you could say, is better than any cowboy or princess. So let's look now at the glory of Christ's anger. As we look in a moment at Christ's anger in Mark chapter 3, you can go ahead and, and turn over to there. Mark chapter 3. As we do this, I want to make a quick clarification. In looking at Christ's anger, I'm not promoting or seeking to stir anybody unnecessarily towards anger, as if I'm trying to glorify the common expression in our lives. I believe that as we look at Christ's anger, instead, it will actually largely eradicate much of the anger in ours. Most anger, as it's called, the anger of man is sinful, and I'm not promoting that just to be really clear. Even just consider this. As you look at Jesus' life over the entirety of the Gospels, he is only said to get angry two times, arguably four times if you include the two different times he cleanse the temple. So, four times total, it seems, that we're told over Jesus' life that we know he got angry. So, very different, very different than I think the common expression today. And a quick note just before reading Mark 3, it's the parallel account to Luke 6, that passage we read just a moment ago about the man with the withered hand and the Pharisee's anger specifically. We want to look at Mark 3 because it emphasizes Jesus' anger. Read with me, beginning in Mark 3, verse 1. He, that's Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They, that's the Pharisees, back from verse 24 in the previous chapter, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good? or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill. But they kept silent. 
After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. As we look at the glory of Christ's anger, let's first look at his motive. As we read in this text, in light of our previous definition, we want to ask, what was Jesus' motive or negative moral judgment that caused his anger? Jesus was angry specifically here over the hardness of their heart. MacArthur clarifies this phrase by saying, this expression describes people who cannot or will not acknowledge the truth. That is specifically the truth that Jesus argued for in verse 4. He asked the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm in the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Another lexicon describes hardness of heart as callousness. Jesus was not simply concerned about the law only. That was actually a part of the Pharisees' problem. That seemed to be all they cared about, right? They were described in other texts as, you know, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel because they concerned themselves with small things of the law but missed the weightier things like mercy and justice. Jesus here cared about not just the law but its impact on people. He says, is it lawful? He cared about the law specifically in his question to them in verse 4, but also, is it lawful to do good, to do good? Jesus loved this man. I mean, this man likely had a family. And his life would have been tremendously impacted by his paralyzed and withered hand. Jesus was angry, therefore, at actual sin. That is the heart of the Pharisaical tradition where it transgressed God's law, which led to this callousness towards people and specifically this man here whose life was tremendously impacted by his withered hand. The heart was hardened towards that. So Jesus' anger loved God. He was concerned about God's law. And Jesus' anger was concerned about good for people. He loved people as well too. It wasn't selfish like we talked about before. And this is the type of anger specifically at a heart level that we need to imitate as well too as Christians, as we follow Christ. We've looked at Jesus' motive for anger. Let's now look at his behavior specifically. Jesus' behavior here while angry is really clear. He humbly and lovingly served. We can see this in the healing of the man's hand, right? Even though he was being opposed, these men were not saying anything. He knew actually they were opposed to him specifically. He knew their thoughts. He went ahead and served and cared for this man in direct contrast and contradiction to who they were. Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, tremble, or as it's translated in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Meditate in your hearts on your bed and be still. And then speaking about behavior, it says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. In other words, offer the sacrifices of righteousness, do what's right. And if Matthew 22, 37 to 39 says that love fulfills the whole law, love is what is right. That's what we should be doing as we think about our behavior as well, too. We could say that the fulfillment of the law then is to be angry and to love, to love. Many people who are sinfully angry often struggle with understanding why love is the right response. There can be things that are very hard that, that sometimes progress over many years and don't change that are hard and difficult that make our lives more difficult. And so they struggle with, why is love the right response? They believe the only way, sometimes people believe this, that someone is, that they, the only way that somebody's going to change is when they get angry, when they raise their voice, when they slam doors or throw something. 
However, we must remember James 1.20, the anger of man does not achieve or accomplish the righteousness of God. It doesn't match the example that we have of Christ specifically. And again, in Ephesians 4.26, this doesn't accomplish good. The expression of our sinful anger doesn't accomplish good. It gives the devil an opportunity to work in our lives and in our household as well, too. Jesus was angry here in Mark 3, but demonstrates patience and self-control in his response. And I, I think some, too, might ask, well, how did he treat the Pharisees with, with love in this particular example? Well, we're not given a great example here specifically, but Mark 3 records this story like we're looking at now, Luke 6, like we looked, about, looked at just a moment ago, and then Matthew 12, verses 8 to 14, also records this exact story as well. In that account, the Pharisees come actually with a question first. And Jesus knows their intention. It's to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. You ever been accused of doing something wrong when it wasn't wrong? Uh, how did it make you feel? And Jesus, his response was not anger or explosion or arguments. It was to patiently, lovingly walk them through and explain why doing good on the Sabbath was right and honoring to God. And he did that graciously. And so if we want people to change or situations to change, we need to be patient too. We need to be patient for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, for them to see their sin, for them to see even the glory of Christ in His Word and truly change God's way and in His timing specifically. We must do things that, are, that lovingly and wisely facilitate this, like, like pray and entrusting the situation to God. At the end of Psalm 4, verse 5, it, about, it spoke about trusting God. That's what we have to do. I wish we had time to look at 1 Peter 2, I think it's verse 23, but it talks about Christ Himself and trusting Himself to the Father as He suffered the greatest injustice on the cross that has ever been. He continually entrusted Himself to God. To respond in a godly way, we have to do that as well. And so it's clear that slamming doors or venting anger in other ways is not the other methodology of change that, that God somehow left out of the Bible. How does God bring us to repentance? It's not His anger. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. You could say it's His love, and all of us have received it. All of us have been loved when we deserved God's wrath. In the gospel, all, all of us are sinners. And what God did in response wasn't to send wrath, to send vengeance. It was to give of His Son, to love us specifically. God has been immeasurably, immeasurably patient with all of us, with all of us. Some may ask, too, what about under intense suffering or difficulty. I mentioned this a moment ago, but it's wonderful even to look at the crucifixion specifically. There was no greater wrong than that which happened to the perfect Son of God as He hung on the cross being crucified by a sinful creation. And what did He do in that moment when He was enduring the worst of suffering on top of the worst of wrong? It was to love. He loved the, the man on the cross who had earlier been reviling him by forgiving him and promising that even that day that he would be with him in paradise. He loved the entire crowd, even the man next to him, by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And he loved his mom by asking his disciple John, John, take care of my mom. So even on the cross, we see in the most intense suffering and stress and difficulty, Jesus out of his heart of love, loving those around him and being willing to forgive. Some may ask as well, is, is vengeance or anger appropriate from us towards sin? Of course, if it's Christ-like, absolutely. But what I often encourage them with is a verse in Romans 12 where God says, vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. And so our response should be one that trusts God to deal with those, those wrongs and evils. Okay, many, sometimes too, people say, well, what about the, the turning over the tables? What about that? You know, as they are trying to justify it, it seems their, their expression of sinful anger in different ways. And I just say, you know, for one, that, that can't be replicated. There's, there's no more temple, and the worship of God now is centralized in each one of us, and so that circumstance can't be repeated. But in all the experience that I've had with people specifically, I've never seen an instance, and again, I, there, there are, I'm, could very likely be some, as Jesus did on the Temple Mount that day, but I've never seen one personally where someone needed to go and turn over tables. It's always been patient, humble love, patient, humble service towards others. And so as you encounter frustrating or difficult situations that tempt you towards anger, ask yourself, how can I help in this situation? How can I love? How can I serve and do what's right or best? You know, I don't know about you guys, but there are things around the home sometimes that can be a little frustrating, right? You know, when you walk up to the trash can and uh, there's more trash on the floor, it seems, than in the actual receptacle itself, and you're tempted, all right? The anger doesn't come from the, the thing on the ground or the many things on the ground. It comes from that judgment internally, right? And maybe from you not wanting to have to repeatedly pick that trash up specifically. But we need to look at it as an opportunity to serve and maybe potentially, depending on who threw it on the floor, to teach, right? Our kids, right? But it needs to be done with patient love, with their best interests, not out of our selfish frustration. We've looked at the glory of Christ's anger. Let's look at the glory of Christ's grief briefly. We see here in our text that Jesus was not simply angry at the Pharisees for the above reasons. He was also grieved in his heart. If you look at verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he wasn't just angry, he was saddened by seeing their callous response to his question. And as Jesus looks upon the Pharisees' sin, he looks upon our sin in the same way with grief as well, too. And his grief really should bring us, should humble us, you could say humiliate us in a way to bring us also to grief. That's his grief. Our grief is summarized very well by Spurgeon in this quote. He says, this day, my God, I hate sin not because it damns me, but because it has done thee wrong. To have grieved my God is the worst grief. To me, I, I, I pray this would be true as we look at our sinful expressions of anger as well. We've looked, at the we've looked at the glory of Christ's grief. Let's look now at the glory of Christ's grace because this is truly what we need, right? Tom mentioned we won't leave unscathed, hopefully. I don't know that's hopefully not fully true, but uh, this, is, this is what we need right here, right? In addition to the scathing is the healing grace, okay, that comes from God, from His forgiveness and from His help. The sinfully angry need forgiveness from God in those that you've sinned against. 1 John 1.9 says that any who, who come to God ultimately, that He'll forgive, that He's righteous and just to forgive them and to cleanse them. And so we need to go to Him to have His forgiveness. So I, I've seen so many people who will be angry, know their anger is wrong, but not be willing to just turn up to their heavenly Father who they've wronged in their sinful anger and just confess it, to humbly confess it. To do that, we have to be humbled first. But also, too, it's not just God's forgiveness we need. We need the forgiveness of those who we've been sinfully angry towards. And even those who our sinful anger was expressed in front of that we were a bad example to. So confess to everybody that we've sinned against, even with our example. Let our kids, if that's who it is or whoever it might be, know that what happened was not right, that there needs to be change, something different. 
Right? That didn't reflect the glory of Christ and His anger specifically and His patience and His love. And so we confess that. For those of us who struggle with sinful anger, we also need more than forgiveness. We need God's help truly to be transformed. 1 Peter 5, 5 explains who receives God's help. It says it's the humble. Those humbled by what's happened in their life that's sinful. It says in 1 Peter 5, 5, that God is opposed to the proud, but that He gives grace to the humble. And Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this very well. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. As we look at the glory of Christ and His anger, His perfect judgment about right and wrong, His unselfish love for the man whose hand was withered, and even for the Pharisees specifically, as we look at the behaviors that need to be transformed even in our own lives where they exist so that we might grow in love, speak in a way that's edifying, be self-controlled, gentle, patient, humble, and forgiving as well as others. This is what we truly need. We need to come before the throne of the one who was tempted in all things just like we were, but never failed, never sinned, perfectly loved, and possesses the power, the ability to provide the help that we truly need. I pray that all of us that truly need this transformation would seek this grace diligently towards transformation specifically in our lives where our emotions and our behavior that expresses sinful anger would be like our Lord specifically. Let's look at some implications. First, we need to evaluate our hearts. When you feel angry, ask yourself, why am I angry? With a focus on your own heart specifically. Is what you're judging as wrong or evil actually sinful? Actually sinful? And is your motive truly unselfish? In other words, it's not just somebody getting in your way of what you wanted. We need to evaluate our hearts. We also need uh, to think about what we cannot say. What we cannot say. Since the origin of anger is a negative moral judgment that proceeds from the heart, this prohibits us from saying such things as, he made me angry, or I'm angry because my car wouldn't start specifically. Right? Anger is not something caused by something outside of us. It's caused by the condition of our hearts, our thoughts, beliefs, and desires specifically. So we can't say those things. I've caught myself this week, I think, doing that. There's also no justification for sinful anger. While there, while there certainly should be compassion for those who are truly wronged, and some people truly are, the old saying accurately states that, that two wrongs don't make a right. right? As, as we respond in sinful anger, oftentimes, like Ephesians 4.26 talks about, it causes damage and harm far worse than whatever that thing is that that person would be angry about. So there's no justification for sinful anger. Anger also is deceitful, as all sin is, and as we sung about just a moment ago, anger is often an intense emotion, and it carries, and it, excuse me, convinces its carrier that expressing anger or vengeance is best. That's what needs to happen. This line of thinking leads, though, to sinful anger being expressed and relationships being damaged in ways that the angry person never foresaw and if they're a Christian would never ever want either. Instead, we must entrust vengeance to the Lord and address our sinful, angry 
anger quickly. Like it says in Ephesians 4 again, that to not let the sun go down on our anger. And then respond in love. Anger is deceitful in that way. Lastly, here on our implications, we want to work to practice truly righteous anger. But how do we do that? We need to regularly look to Christ and the truth of God's Word. More specifically, work to put on Christ's discernment of right and wrong and His humble servant's heart that made His life not about Himself, but about loving and serving God and others. Repeatedly look at Christ, His example, and the truth of God's Word. We could put all the energy we'd ever want to into trying to be like Christ, but without His enablement, that is the Spirit's enablement, through the truth, working to transform us, that is, as we stare and behold that glory, it's that that, and only that, that truly transforms us. If any of you would like some additional resources on anger, I want to mention a few here. Uprooting Anger, like we looked at earlier, that definition by Robert Jones. Uh, his book, again, Uprooting Anger, is a great resource. A shorter one, just a short pamphlet, is Anger, Anxiety, and Fear by Stuart Scott. And then The Heart of Anger, which specifically looks at anger in children by Lou Priolo, is an excellent resource as well, too. The last one, uh, Keith Palmer did an equip seminar, I think, last June. And he covered some of the same things that we did tonight, but he also covered how to come alongside and help an angry person. So maybe you're not primarily maybe the one that struggles in this area, but you want to know how to come alongside and help somebody who does. His talk is great, and it's available on our church website. Lastly, as we consider all these implications, may the Lord help all of those in need to apply them. Let's pray.